A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey guys, it's Kayla. I'm so happy you're able to join us today because... You guessed it. We are all still so directionally challenged. We thought we would have it all figured out by the time we were in our 30s. But surprise, we don't. And that's okay. Do you want to know and understand how to navigate the unwritten rules of office politics? Do you want to know what your colleagues think about you? I am sure your answers to both of those are yes. Today, we are talking about work in the workplace, how to lose yourself in the workplace or how to not lose yourself in the workplace. We have Dr. Michelle Peking on today. She is a globally recognized expert on inequality and organizational culture. She is the author of the best-selling award-winning book, The Fix, and has a new book out now called How Work 
works. The subtle science of getting ahead without losing yourself. She has so many postgraduate degrees, including a master's of arts in industrial organizational psychology, a master of business administration, a postgraduate degree in journalism, and a PhD in management. She is pursuing a postdoctoral research fellowship. She's also the senior advisor to the UN Foundation's Girl Up campaign. Before this, Michelle was the director of inclusion at Netflix. And before that, she was the head of UN Women's Global Innovation Coalition for Change. She has over two decades of international experience working in the private sector and so much more. Without further ado, to help us learn how to navigate the unwritten rules of office politics, here is my conversation with Dr. Michelle P. King. And I am here with Dr. Michelle P. King. We are so honored that you are here and so glad to discuss this with you. I mean, you are here to help us learn how to navigate the unwritten rules of office politics and how to master the art of reading the air. Your first book, The Fix, Overcome the Invisible Barriers That Are Holding Women Back at Work, is wildly popular, a bestseller, and led to your podcast of the same title. And now you are back with a book called How Work Works, The Subtle Science of Getting Ahead Without Losing Yourself. There's so much to dive in. the book is so fantastic. I listened to it on Audible and really enjoyed it and felt like it gave me so much to pull from. But to start more broadly, how do you even begin to write a book of this magnitude? I mean, you have a really impressive resume, lots of life experience over a decade worth of research, but how do you begin to organize the psychology of something of this magnitude? I know it's a very bold line, (laughs) how work works. Well, I mean, the good news for listeners, I guess, is I am not into platitudes. I have no time for general opinions, but not interested. I'm a researcher, you know, 20 years in academia, my PhD was based on this topic. And so what I really set out to try and answer is why is it that there is always a person, and I know your listeners are going to be thinking of somebody right now who doesn't have the qualifications, doesn't necessarily have the experience. No one can quite tell why they keep getting promoted, but they keep getting promoted and you're not quite sure why they're getting ahead, right? And so I I set out to research that. And what I found was that in workplaces, you can have as many formal policies and processes as you want when it comes to how you hire, develop, reward, promote people. But the reality is there's a whole informal side to how workplaces work. And so it's really these four things, like how you manage informal networks, how you share informal information, how you manage your informal development, and how you manage your informal advancement. That's super critical today because workplaces have changed. They've become a lot more informal. So to give a listener a quick example, you know, you can apply for a job, but by then, arguably, it's too late. 70% of all jobs come through the informal network. 80% of jobs are never even advertised. Right. So by the time you're applying for a role on LinkedIn, too late. And the crazy thing about it is I looked at all the research on how workplaces have changed and will continue to change. And the forecast is a lot more informal. So a lot more of this happening. So I think what people need to recognize is how you manage your workplace is just as important as what you do in terms of tasks. But knowing how to manage your workplace means knowing how work works. So that's why I wrote the book. Right. Oh, that's fantastic. And you know, you you speak so, right so much about how to read the air. It's a huge thing that comes up multiple times within how work works. Can you explain to our listeners what this means? Because I think this is at the root of everything. It is. It really is. So 
you know, there's this lovely um, story, which is a true story about a Japanese businessman who was in a meeting with a client and the client is sort of coming towards the end of the meeting and the client says to the businessman, hey, you know, that's a nice watch. And the businessman looks at his watch and then he carries on and begins the whole story about where he bought the watch from and, you know, time's ticking on. And actually in Japanese culture, reading the informal cues, reading the how is really important, right? It's a, it's a cultural norm there. And so what the client was really saying was, hey, you know, have a look at your watch. I'm done. Like, look at the time. You're running over. I've got to get to my next thing. And so a lot of people listening to this, particularly in America, where I've lived and worked for the last 10 years, you know, will say, well, why wouldn't you be more direct? Why wouldn't you just say, hey, you're running over, can we end the meeting? Or, mm-hmm. And I think what people miss is it's about managing the impact your behavior has on others. So reading the air in Japanese culture is a way of demonstrating care. And it's a way of saving face and not having somebody feel stupid. Now, in Japanese culture, they call it, you know, reading the air. It translates into reading the air. But, you know, this is a phenomenon that occurs all over the world. So in Britain, it's read the unwritten rules of work. You know, I've Mm. heard people in other countries refer to it as read the room or read between the lines of what somebody's saying. What we're talking about is, are you actively managing the impact your behavior is having? Are you aware of what somebody's saying beyond words or, you know, non-verbally? So it's really getting people to try and understand how they're coming across. And so that point around informal information sharing that I shared earlier is one way to understand the gap between how you see yourself and how somebody else is perceiving that behavior and the impact that it's having, and importantly, knowing what to do to close that gap. And I mean, alarmingly, 95% of people are not self or think they're self-aware, but only about 15% of people are. That's a Harvard Business Review study. And that's an amazing statistic. It means most of us are actually the Japanese businessmen. Wow. I mean, yeah, that that is a very high statistic. It is a really all walking around thinking that went great and it did it, right? It bombed. But and then the worst bit is we don't even because we're not even self-aware, we're not even taking the action we need to take to manage that gap, right? And so in in Japan, that businessman went and tweeted about that meeting and the tweet went mm-hmm. viral. You can actually look it up. And it's all because Everybody was so shocked that he hadn't read the air because that's a a strong cultural norm. And I think the reason I wanted a new concept for this is because in the old world of work, the 1950s world of work, where it's transactional, command and control, hierarchical, the old rules were something known as office politics, which to most people feels icky, right? It feels really like it's about backstabbing. It's about sort of one type of person getting ahead at the expense of somebody else. It's that win-lose philosophy, right? The new world of work has a new set of rules, which is much more about how do I manage the impact of that my behaviors are having? What does collective success look like? Is it possible to actually get ahead without that costing somebody else? And the book really shows through data why, yes, that is true and actually why it's important. 83% of, of people don't just go to work and complete tasks. They have to work with other people to do their job. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that that sort of win-lose mentality works in a world where you're just doing your tasks and you don't have to work with others to get your job done. But that doesn't work today. We'll be right back in just a minute. Thank you. 
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And we're back. Speaking of working with others, you talk about how we can figure out how to know, you know, what our colleagues really think of us. And I think this is something that everyone would love to be able to figure out because half of you're right so much of our work is inclusive everybody is in this together we're working on uh, uh, especially you know i think whether it it's everything has changed now sometimes it's virtual so that becomes even more difficult to read you know i mean it, office politics have become exponentially more difficult and so talk to us a little bit about the practicality of trying to figure out how we fit in and what others think of us and what we can do about that okay so let's do this right if you're driving please don't do this exercise if you're not driving you can do this so if you're not driving i want you to take your index finger and i want you to write the letter e on your forehead okay so typically research shows a self-aware person, a person who understands how they see themselves and there's alignment between that and how someone else sees their behavior and they manage that impact so that they close the gap, will write the letter E facing 
the other person. So they won't write it facing themselves. They'll write it facing the other person, right? I wrote it opposite. Exactly. So most people will do the opposite, right? And so the the point I want to make is this isn't a judgment. It's not a criticism. It's just a reality that most of us have an overly positive view of ourselves and the impact we're having. So how do you close that? Practically, what can you do? I want people who might be thinking, well, do I really need to do this to just hear me out? If you are an underestimator, if you consistently underestimate your performance, you can become self-aware, right? With a lot of positive feedback, with calibrating your view, getting loads of sort of feedback from people, understanding what your strengths are, building that. If you're an overestimator, just having one of those in your team will reduce your team's performance by 50%. And that is because overestimators, right, they are the competent jerks. They are the people who are like, la, 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 I don't want to hear it. And the problem is the higher up an organization you go, the more of those you tend to get. In fact, in academia, we call it the CEO disease, right? It's literally leaders don't have access to a wide range of honest feedback, right? And they tend to go to the same types of people who are similar to them, ready by. So what can you do? What can you do if you're like, I want to manage how I'm behaving. I want to understand what my colleagues think of me. I want to be way more aware because that's going to help me be more successful. And by the way, it's one of the most predictive factors for career success is self-awareness. So there's two routes you have. The first is self-reflection. So one study showed if you take 15 minutes a day, one five, you can do this when you're walking your dog, when you're showering, I really don't care. Take 15 minutes a day and all you have to do is ask yourself what questions. So what worked, what didn't, what could I do differently, right? So you're really focusing on reflecting on what questions, not why questions, not why did that happen, why does my boss hate me, why don't I get on my just what questions, right? What worked, what didn't, what could I do differently? Spend five minutes on each, just reflecting on your day. If you do that for 10 days, so 15 minutes a day for 10 days, you will increase your self-awareness by 23%. Now, somebody's saying, well, it's just 23%. No, think of the compounded impact of making that a regular practice over 30 days, right? And so that's one avenue. But the challenge with that is you're still just having your sense of the impact your behaviors have. A truly self-aware person is going to integrate their perspective with somebody else's. And so you need to ask for feedback in the moment. Again, don't make it weird. Just you finish the presentation, you finish the meeting. Hey, what worked? What didn't? What could I do differently? Focus on the what question. And then you start to see where the gaps are so you can identify what to do to close it. That's the key. So it's great if you start reflecting, but you've got to somehow calibrate that with what other people actually think. Like what evidence do you have that that's true? And who do you recommend someone asks? Because that's another thing you address in your book, which I so relate to. So many people want to have a mentor, but not many of us have one. And I can see in life where if you do want feedback, you can ask a mentor, someone you love and respect that is probably in your field that really knows what they're talking about. But not a lot of us have that, myself included. I would love to have a mentor. How do we even go about finding one? And then also the beginning of my question, how do we, who do we ask for feedback from? So, I think you want to actually not necessarily ask mentors for feedback. I think you're wanting to ask people you work with in the moment. So, and actually the more diverse the range of people you can ask, the better, because they're all going to have a different view, right? And I promise you, 
This is not like some woo-woo stuff. I, I do this every time. So every time I run a presentation or a workshop with a leadership team, I'll leave and I'll just pass by them. They say, hey, what worked there for you? Or what didn't? What do you think we could do differently? And I'll keep asking those questions. And the data that you get from people is amazing. Somebody will say, well, I got that. I just didn't understand that part. Or actually, because of your accent, could you slow down? Or actually, and every time where I think about how can I make small incremental adjustments to how I'm doing this, it makes me a better speaker. It makes me a better presenter. It makes me a better facilitator. So I do it all the time. I think in terms of finding mentors or sponsors, I introduced this concept in the book of career advocates and why they're very different. So mentors, you know, for me, that's very much the old school world of work, right? Where typically, I mean, even if you look at the history of mentorship, it's born out of this idea of a white male taking on a younger white male, supporting him through the rat. It's all a bit gross. And the reality is in my first book, I actually shared how women have access to mentors, but they don't receive the same benefits because men don't actually share the same types of information. They don't give them the information on what's happening in the organization. So like, I just want to park mentorship. I also want to park sponsorship because that's almost the next level up from that. I think what we're looking for, for honest, are career advocates, people who are going to, you know, have your best interest in mind, understand what your career ambitions are and advocate for you when it matters. Like if there's an opportunity, say, hey, I think, you know, Michelle be really good for that or and here's why, because they've got your back, right? To get those types of people, there's really three things you need to do. So when you're building your connections, what I call informal networks, normally your informal network is going to be made up of somebody who can give you access to information on what's going on in the workplace, who can give you support if you're having a bad day, or who can also give you advice like a career advocate, right? And generally a career advocate will probably give you all three. So that person, if you want to cultivate a relationship with them, what all the data tells us is think about what advice what information and what support can you provide that person? So this is what we all get wrong about informal networks. We all think, hey, what can I get from this person? How do I get to connection with them so they can give me something rather than, hey, how do I invest in this connection by paying it forward to start with? And what would be most meaningful, which we know is information, advice or support, so that I have the relationships when I need something, I can I can get it in return. And I spoke at the LSC, it's a big university here in the UK, and a huge group of graduates. And one of them came up to me afterwards and said, you know, but I've got nothing to give. I want to connect with you, but I have nothing to give. And I was like, what are you, what are you talking about? Like, you know, I've just launched a book. You could write a review on Amazon. You could reach out to me. Like, you know, you could say, hey, that was a, you could tell me, let me know what you think of the talk. You could read the book and let me know. If it, like there's so many different ways you could connect with me. That doesn't have to be you asking me for a job or asking me for access to somebody in my informal network. Like we could just start the connection. So I think that's the problem. We literally sit there going, who could be my mentor, right? Rather than actually it's a two-way street. What can I give to start that connection off? 
I love that so much. And I I'm thank you for correcting me and getting rid of, you know, how to have a mentor, because you're right. That is not what I meant. I, and you had said it, it's a career advocate, right? So I just want to repeat that so that everyone can, you know, really understand that it, you're you're right. There's it's such an antiquated way of you know looking at things. And I you write a lot about in- inclusivity. And I really want to discuss this for just a second, because I think this is a good way to kind of transition into that. When trying when applying for jobs, you always tell people to look at who's at the top, how they act is a huge sign as to what the culture will be like. Can you expand on this a little bit for us and just how to make sure we are trying to be a part of the positive and not necessarily the negative of the workspace inclusivity and everything that goes on with it? I mean, it's such a it's it's there's so much at play, but you do such a good job discussing it. So I think what I would say to everybody is, you know, you are your workplace. You are your workplace. So it's a it's a sort of a, a crazy way to look at it. You are your workplace. And I hold leaders accountable for the cultures they create because 46%, 46% of employees' experiences of exclusion are directly attributable to their line leaders' behavior. So 75% of your mental and emotional well-being is also tied to your line leader's behavior. So if we want to move the needle on inclusion, we have to start with leaders, right? Leaders drive culture through the behaviors they reward, endorse, support, and engage in themselves. And culture creates your lived experience of work. If you're going into work every day and your boss is rewarding a transactional command and control dominant, assertive, aggressive, competitive, hyper-masculine way of leading, you're never going to be you're never going to be successful, right? We need leaders who value differences, who reward different types of behaviors, who include individuals regardless of sort of which way they show up, right? Like I'm an introvert. I'll demonstrate something like curiosity very differently to an extrovert as an example. But if you only value that hyper-masculine way, you're going to disregard that, that contribution from me. So I think organizations have been designed to value one way of working and one way of leading to the detriment of everybody else. And I think the challenges in the DEI space right now is, you know, McKinsey studies showed workplaces have become more diverse but less inclusive. We're not valuing the diversity we're bringing in. And as a result, there's just a lot of fatigue, a lot of backlash with the whole concept where people just want to pack it in, right, because it's like we're not seeing the value. And so for me, interestingly, no one's asked me the question, but the reason I wrote How Work Works is I wanted to show people that, you know, with the first book, it was about how do you change your workplace? Because I believe in fixing workplaces and not women, right? Organizations were designed to be value different. But with the second book, I wanted to show people we all play a role in that because we are our workplaces. So how do you every day take action to be you know, somebody who is inclusive, because we talk about it, but what does it really mean? What am I really asking you to do every day? And so the book shares those four things. How do you network in an inclusive way? Like diversity of networks is arguably the most important thing. It it predicts promotions. It predicts long-term career success, like your ability to have a wide range of people in your network who can support you is very important because workplaces become so much more diverse. Just one example. So across all four, I share the four most important ways you can practice this to help advance yourself and and your peers at work. So I think that would be my message to people as to why that's super important.
hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. And we're back. I think another huge part of the book is talking about trust. And I, and what I love so much is you, another it's another thing that's really difficult to define. And and it's it, it's true. You ha, you have a great example in your book about how trust is like the air. When it's present no one notices, but when it isn't everybody notices. And so can you talk to our listeners about how you feel like you finally got your dream job and you realized something was off and your colleagues were being let go and I'll let you take it from here. Yes, I mean, it's a true story. So all the stories in the book are 100% true. And it was a very traumatic experience. I mean, I walked into an organization where everybody was like, this is the workplace, right? You've made it when you work there. And right. I just realized, like, you get that feeling, something's not right. Mm -hmm. And over time, I noticed leaders would say the right things, but the behaviors weren't great. So there was a lot of organizational politics, a lot of backstabbing, a lot of that going on, really toxic workplace culture and, you know, very high firing culture. So that happens a lot. So you just look at it and I started to realize, hey, I don't know if this is for me. And and then I met an HRVP who was an extreme bully, right? And over a period of months, just relentless sort of bullying towards me. And I think a lot of people have experienced that and know what that feels like. And you almost think, am I going crazy? You know, like, I don't know why this is happening. And so I, you know, am in a very privileged position to be able to say, hey, I, I don't need this, man. I'm out. Like, I, I don't want to do this. So I remember going into the CEO's office and just saying, look, I, I don't want to do this. I'm out. And everybody's like, no, that's crazy. You shouldn't. Why, why would you quit? No one quits this organization. Like, you should never quit. Uh-huh. And I was like, I just don't want to do this. It's not good for me. I don't want to be here. And I just did that because I knew it wasn't a workplace I was going to be successful. And, you know, the interesting thing was trust is like the air that we breathe because the day I really quit, 
was the day the CEO emailed me after our meeting and said, I'm sorry, we'll do better. And, you know, that HRVP was then fired. And also, like, you know, as the story unfolds, like, I, she later admitted to all the bullying on my last day. And wow. my boss would admit it to knowing it was going on, but said it would just be too tricky for her to do anything. And I remember being so flawed when that happened because I was like, wow, you know, we do know it's going on. We just sort of ignore it. And that is a very, very dangerous place. So I think, you know, for listeners to think about, well, do you trust your workplace? Probably one of the most important questions you can ask because one in three people don't trust their workplace. And trust is actually the foundation because you're giving your time. I mean, next to sleeping, work is where you spend the most number of hours over your lifetime. So you're not just giving your time, you're giving a huge portion of your life. And in exchange for that, you don't just want pay. You want to be trusted to be able to do your job without someone breathing over your neck or bullying you. You want to feel psychologically safe. You want to feel connected to your workplace in terms of the people who are in it. You want to feel like you belong. You want to feel like this is the place where you can make a contribution and that's going to be valued. You want to learn and grow and you want opportunities to be recognized for the contribution that you make. Those are sort of five foundational needs everybody has of work. And the trust exchange breaks when you aren't sure if your workplace is going to meet those needs. So anyone listening to this, I want you to think about what I just said. If you are unsure on any of those, it's likely you don't really trust your workplace to hold up its end of the bargain. And I think trust matters because it's about predictability. Can you predict how your workplace, and when I say workplace, I mean the people in it, are going to show up for you? Do they have your best interests at heart? Is it mutually beneficial? Because if it isn't, you're going to spend a huge amount of mental and emotional energy trying to work out, is this a place I should even be in? And if you're asking yourself that question, it's probably not. So you need to pick your workplace really wisely because it has such a huge impact on your whole experience of life. Wow. I mean, that is that is key. So judging by those statistics, one in three person, one in three people listening right now, aren't very happy in their workplace. So let's say they're listening and they've realized, okay, you know what? I'm not happy. I need to make a change. Can you talk to us about what that looks like or the first step towards that? Because that is scary and that's a, that's big. That's a huge life change. Yeah, and that's a huge study by Eldman. So it's a really big, it's a big study. I think there's 16,000 participants. One in three globally don't trust their workplace. So, and it's called the trust report. It's very good. So people should have a look at it. But I think the starting point is you want to work through, so when you're picking an organization and or even if you're in an organization, you're not sure whether to leave, you want to think through those fundamental needs, right? Is it a place where I feel mentally and, and physically safe? Because that's foundational. Is it a workplace where I feel like I can belong? Is it a workplace where I can make a contribution and I know that's going to be valued? Is it a workplace where I can learn and grow? and have some autonomy over my work? And is it a workplace where I'm going to be recognized and rewarded for my contribution? So you need all of those. And if any one of those is missing, you've got to think about, well, how are you going to meet that need? Because it's a need you have for work, right? And I think the second part to this that we miss when it comes to trust is most of us think we go to work and it's going to be enough to get the job title. It's going to be enough to get the salary. It is not nine out of 10 people would give up 23% of all future earnings, right? Which is as much as you spend on housing 
for greater meaning and fulfillment at work. So often for me, when I look at what breaks trust, it's not just predictability in terms of, am I going to get paid? Am I going to get rewarded? Am I going to develop? Am I going to grow? It's also, hey, this is not meaningful and fulfilling work, right? I don't feel like I'm enjoying what I'm doing. And the problem is people want meaning and they want it badly. That's why we're seeing the lazy girl jobs sort of phenomenon. We're seeing, I think it's now called snail girl jobs phenomenon, the quiet quitting, the great resignation, because people are going in and thinking, hey, I'm just been having to do these tasks and clock out, right? So how do you find meaning? I think you have to, when you're selecting a workplace, make sure you, for every single one of those needs, you have questions in the interview to try and understand, is this a workplace that's going to meet my needs? Because had I done that, I would not have joined that organization. I wouldn't have, right? I would have asked more concrete questions to try and understand, well, can you share, you know, what is the culture like when it comes to inclusion? How do people take time to connect? How much of a priority is it to you as my leader? Like, what are you doing to be inclusive? Like I would have had to really start to see actually they're talking the game, but I'm not seeing this person actually own it. They can't point to tangible things they do every day to be inclusive. How are you going to support my learning and development? You know, what what does it look like to be able to do this job? Are you left on your own to do it? Or like, what, what does it look like? How involved are you? So all those questions, trying to understand, is this a workplace that aligns to what I need? And we never think of it like that. We go into interviews, we answer all the questions, we try to get the job, we try to negotiate the salary without ever thinking, hey, is this a workplace that's going to meet my needs beyond pay? Right. And, you know, that is the new definition of success, as you write about in your book, right? What can you contribute to? What can you get out of your work? How can you make a difference as opposed to how much money you make? And that is key. And such a, I mean, there is so much in how work works and you have so much to offer. I am just so grateful. Before we let you go, anyone who's, you know, listening, that's on the verge of making a decision for their career, do you think one career for a few decades is the way to go? Do you think it's more beneficial for someone to start in a company, learn and grow, move elsewhere? How do you, what's your perspective on that? Because it feels like um, people used to stay at one job for a very long time and they would view that as success. And it seems like that culture is changing. So that's gone, gone. It's gone. It's gone, gone. guys. It's gone. gone. Okay. So if you're in a job that you've been in for five plus years, happy days, but I need you to know it's gone. So you cannot rely on your workplace. I see too many people in senior roles where they were promised a job for life. They were promised regular promotions and bonuses and increases and that changed. And they don't know when it happened. They never invested in diversifying their network. They never grew their informal network. They're now out there on an island, can't find a job end of the world, right? And so I coach so many of these people. And what I would say, if you're listening to this and you've been in your role for a while, recognize it's not about your employer managing your career. I promise you they're not doing that. It is about you managing your career, which means managing your employability, right? So you need to understand when you talk, you know, skill sets, when you talk development, what are you doing to invest in yourself? 75% of career success comes from soft skills. 
only 25% comes from technical skills. So learning how your workplace works, learning how to manage all of that Mm. is the social and emotional skills people need. And I think what we have to recognize is you have to take steps to manage your career, which means thinking about how am I growing that informal network? How am I investing in my development, right? How am I really trying to manage my career advancement in terms of planning for where I want to go, what skills I'm learning, how I'm learning those on my job because 70% of learning happens on the job, who am I getting feedback from, what new ways of working am I developing through trial and error, who can I observe who might actually be having some of those skills I want to learn because most of us also learn through observation. How am I getting feedback to help find development? Those informal ways are how we learn on the job. And so I think it's really important to recognize that because your employer, I promise you, won't think twice when they need to make a redundancy. And if you're not actively growing your network, actively developing yourself, you're not going to have what you need to be successful when that time comes, which you absolutely will. Wow. There you have it. Dr. Michelle Peking, thank you so much. You have so much to share. Highly recommend How Work Works and also The Fix. Thank you for everything. You also have a podcast called The Fix. Anyone can check out and we are just so grateful that you joined us today. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's fascinating her story about the businessman and his watch and how many clues are given to us at any given time and how we can informally learn to read our colleagues and people. The book has so much to share, you guys. This is just the tip of the iceberg. I highly recommend How Work Works. And the truth is, you know, I'm not in an office space every day, but I am able to implement it into my everyday life. How to read people, how to know if people like you or not. I mean, that is something that is so valued just in an everyday interactions. So I think this book can be for everyone. And I'm so grateful to Dr. Michelle P. King for giving us a lot of takeaways and tangible things because, I mean, in just a matter of 25 minutes, we have learned so much. I'm so happy you joined us for this episode of Directionally Challenged. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. We have another great one coming for you next week. Until then, take care. Directionally Challenged is a production of Pineapple Productions, hosted by me, Kayla Yule. Produced by Melissa DeMonts and Diamond Imprint Productions. Editing by Diane Kang. Post-production sound by Coco Lawrence. And production assistance by Melanie D. Watson.